0: It's weird how um, sometimes Christians think that the word redemption is like a lofty word, uh, like an elitist word, like something that needs to be um, broken down because it's so complex and theological. And, And yet we use that word redemption all the time, and it's in the titles of movies, right? I mean even that amazing, wonderful, cinematic piece of art called Dumb and Dumber, right? Harry is able to say to Lloyd, just when I think you couldn't be any dumber, you do something like this and totally redeem yourself. It's like, listen, if, if, we can, if they can use the word redeemed or redemption in that movie, and that is not one I'd recommend, but <laughs> I have seen it then it it can't be too hard to understand. And, you know, the more I think about the Word and the more I understand the Word, the more I realize that in every human heart, regardless of a person's religious beliefs, convictions, or even if someone doesn't believe at all, that that the deepest part, everybody wants this thing called redemption, right? Um, Sometimes in big ways, sometimes in small ways, right? When, 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 When a quarterback makes a horrible play, loses the game, what does he want? He wants a shot at what? Redemption, which usually means the next game he's got to come out, throw a perfect game so that the, uh, the positive performance outweighs his negative performance. And I tell you, as, as a musician, I understand that. It's like when, if you play a really bad note in your recital, uh, you want a shot at redemption. You know, I had a, um, a band director who once told me, listen, if you're going to make a mistake, you make it loud. And the reason he said that is because I don't want people playing timid. So you play as loud as you can, and if if you make a mistake, make it loud. Well, let me tell you, I've made that mistake, and I made it loud. Felt the need to redeem myself the next time we played, right? We talk about this idea of redemption. It's just we use it as a word to talk about, like, setting things right, Uh, about um, overcoming bad with with good performance. Um, You know, and, and it drives a lot of what we do, this desire to see things made right. Um, in the case of, for the illustration of both the football player and musician, it's, a, it's an attempt to self-redeem, to overcome bad performance with good performance. Uh, how many sons and daughters spend most of their life trying to redeem themselves from negative choices in the eyes of their parents? Wanting to be approved so badly. And that desire for approval is a desire for redemption, right? It's, 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 it's part of the... Our fallen world, a broken world, our own sense of of failure, that we we, we crave this thing called redemption, That's wanting to make things right, wanting a reversal of things. Um, Redemption is what what brings a happy ending to a story, right? It's, 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 It's part of what we all deeply want. And the distinctive thing about the Bible, and to be more specific, the gospel, is it insists that We can't overcome bad performance with good performance by ourselves. That redemption has to come from outside. It can never come from inside. Someone else has to act on our behalf to make things right again. A good performance to outweigh a bad performance. We come to this story in in Exodus, and the people of God, the people he loves, his covenant bride... Um, his treasure, his inheritance, his heritage, people that he loves beyond belief, they are in bondage, they are in slavery, and they are unable to redeem themselves. They cannot make things right. They do not have the power to liberate themselves from the hand of Pharaoh. But someone else does. And this morning, we look at God pulling the trigger, if you will, on redemption. That is, God is going to act. After a long time in which he has allowed his people, for his own purposes, to, to be in slavery and experience it. And in these pages, in these verses that we have, we, we learn about the God of redemption and the nature of redemption itself. Because in these verses, we have God's call of Moses. And I just want to look at several facets of redemption in, in hopes that you'll, well, for one, be Humbled by the greatness of who God is in his redeeming work, but also be encouraged. So let me start here. I, 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 I wanna, we're going to look at verse 23. That's kind of where we're going to start, chapter 2. Um, but I want to back up to a verse in Genesis that is uh, intricately tied to what we're about to look at in this concept of an idea of, of redemption. God comes to, to Abraham, the patriarch of the Jewish people, um, to make promises, promises that, that, that are, are ours, yes, in Christ. And he promises him, verse 13 of chapter 15 of Genesis, he says, part of the promise is he says, know for certain that your offspring, right, your, your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. He's talking about Egypt. And will be servants there, or another translation, slaves, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Four hundred years, he says, they are going to be in bondage. That's that's what that verse says. And that's a promise made centuries before Exodus one and two. But he's talking about here these four hundred years, basically the the time frame of Exodus one and two. So with that in mind, that God said, this is going to happen. There's going to be this big space of time where my people will be enslaved. Exodus 2.23 tells us, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham. that promise. And with Isaac and Jacob, God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. At this point, God remembers this promise he made. Now, what that doesn't mean is that God somewhere along the way forgot, or he lost track of time, or he was busy fixing something broken in the universe, and just, oh man, I made a promise to Abraham. That's, That's That's not what it means when it says, and God remembered. Nor does it imply that God wasn't listening to the prayers of the people for centuries as they're in slavery, as if for the first time, the prayers actually made it to heaven. That's not the sense of it either. The sense of, and God remembered his promise, is the same sense that Genesis 8-1 used or had when, when it says, and God remembered Noah. That is, it's a way of God saying, It's time for me to act. In a manner of the language of David, it's it's time for God to arise off his throne and to do what he said he would do, to pull the trigger. I'm going to act. No more waiting. The decisive time is now. After 400 years, now is the time. And that tells us something. That teaches us something about the nature of divine redemption. Of of God doing what he said he would do. And that is the time frame of redemption, the time frame of God acting, delivering, and saving is always his. That is, to put it in my own words, the now, you know, when God executes what he says he's going to do, the now belongs to God always. We as... Is people cannot manufacture it. We can't control it. We can't manipulate it. The time in which God acts to deliver the now is always in his hands. The reason I think that's important is because we, and I don't have to tell you this, you can just feel it every day, is, is we are massively impatient, controlling people. God didn't show, he he didn't act for 400 years. I mean, he acted in providence, but he didn't act to deliver until he said, Now's the time. It puts him in control, it puts him on the throne. He determines the times and seasons. And we as his people, that means we wait, we pray, we hope, we follow, knowing that God acts decisively in his time. And I'll tell you, that that is a, a, a strong reminder to me. I hope it is to you. I'm, you know, we look at the world, broken as it is, wondering what's going to happen between Russia and the United States. I mean, my eyes are glued to the news going, wow, this, this just to escalate, right? When, Lord, are you going to finally break in and do something about this mess? Or a little more personal, close to home. You know, we have family members. I have family members that are lost and just, just living Foolish, stupid lives. Self-destructive lives. Like, Lord, when, when they've heard the truth. Some of you feel that way about your sons and daughters who've wandered off. Like, when? Like, when are you going to pull the trigger? When are you going to open the door of the heart? When are you going to turn the lights on? When are you going to regenerate? When are you going to say, come to life? I've been waiting. My son and daughter's 30 years old, still wandering off. See? We feel that and wonder... If God really is listening to us after 30 years, 400 years, even with our own selves, right? There's, you know, we have these things called private devotions where, you know, we, and if you don't do this, you should do this. We're seeing so you know, a time where you spend with the Lord, with his word, praying to him and communing with him personally, privately every day. I, I think that's a great practice, a biblical practice. But there's times when we become, I become impatient with the Lord, Right? Like we could be struggling with a decision, with a a horrible oppressive workplace, um, a horrible oppressive marriage, or you're just looking inside your own heart and seeing those or experiencing those overwhelming emotions that you feel sometimes of anger or greed or lust or jealousy, and you're thinking, Lord, come on, I need a little redemptive moment here. Release me from the stranglehold of these things. And sometimes we approach it like, well, maybe if I meditate hard enough, and I pray long enough with such conviction and persuasion that God's gonna break in and he's gonna give me a little redemptive moment. Which is again our attempt to manipulate or manufacture a little redemptive moment. And I almost picture the Lord like a parent, you know, across his arms saying. Well, you just stop? You're not in control of your heart. I mean, your, your best thing to do is actually humble yourself, which actually means let go of control. Because the now belongs to me, not to you. Which means our part, humble ourselves, give up control, and trust. Even if it's four hundred years, and wait, and pray, and hope, and allowing God to be the God of redemption in His time. Redemption happens in God's time. You know, it's He's the one who says now, right? On Palm Sunday when Jesus rode in, it's because God said now, and when He gave His life on Good Friday to undo. The work of the devil and sin and death it's because God said in the fullness of time now and there's still a now to come when the Lord's going to say now and after centuries the trumpet will sound and Christ will descend and he will judge the living and the dead it's going to happen but that now Is in His hand, so we trust, so we wait, so we pray, so we hope, and endeavor to live just humbly and faithfully in accordance with His will. That's that's, if you will, first observation about redemption. The second one has to do: God comes to Moses right in a in a burning bush. He takes the initiative. And I'll just read the story here because what I want you to see in a couple seconds is that like, God is, is passionately devoted to redeeming his covenant people. He's not lighthearted about it. He's not, he doesn't lack intensity. There's a sense of attentive care and passion. So God comes to Moses, or let me just read the story. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law. Jethro, the priest of Midian, there aren't even his flocks. He's taking care of his father-in-law's flocks, right, out in the, in, in the wilderness. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. This is where the Jewish people would come after they've been freed. And the angel of the Lord, or the angel of Yahweh, appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of, of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw, he turned aside to see God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take off your sandals, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God as he should. And Moses, uh, verse 7, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to a place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. In this encounter, taken by the initiative of God, he he tells Moses who he is, what he sees, and what he's going to do. As he tells them, listen, this is who I am, identifies himself, I'm the same God that made that promise to Abraham. And, and this is what I see, and this is what I'm going to do about it. You know, the, the whole thing t- t- teaches us about, like, the character and the, of God and his heart, and his heart for redemption. I mean, I mean, he, he, he's, a, he's a God who speaks. He's not a God who's silent. He's not a God who's impersonal. He actually speaks and calls Moses by name Moses. I know you. Right? Personal. And he comes to him in a, in a form of, you know, this, this burning bush that isn't burned, right? Which is what, what Moses is intrigued by. You know, it's unique, that image, that, that, that way in which God chose to show himself to Moses. It's like fire, you know, which connotes God's holiness. You know, which, which is why he said, take off your shoes. <laughs> Bare feet are cleaner than shoes. I'm a holy person. And yet the fact that the tree, the living tree, the living bush, in in Hebrew it could be translated thorn bush, um, the fact that it's not consumed suggests that he's merciful, that in his holiness he doesn't consume life. And of all the things that he chose, he chose a bush, thorn bush. He could have chosen a a cedar of Lebanon, you know, the majestic trees, but it's 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 a desert bush. Suggesting divine accommodation, perhaps humility. I can understand why the early church fathers saw this as a shadow of Jesus. Holiness, mercy, and divine accommodation or humility. This is God showing himself, being with Moses. And he says, this is what I see. You know, I, I see. This is what I see. I, I see the affliction of my people, and I hear Their cries, and I know. This is God who sees, and a God who hears, and a God who knows, is God's gonna do something about it. He goes on here to say, and I have come down. Like he's left his position to come down and do something about it. All of this just gives us a sense of like God's intentional, intense passion to do something to save, deliver, and redeem his people. He's not willy-nilly about it. He's not nonchalant. He's actively coming to do something about it himself, personally. And that, that is, while redemption happens in God's time, one of the things we have to remember and remind ourselves is that God is passionate about it. Passionate to the point that he'd come not in a bush, a burning bush, but he'd come and take on human flesh. And not only see, hear, and know, but sympathize because he's human as his glory inhabits humanity and throws himself on a cross for our sake. That's, That's how passionate God is about redemption, about his people, his covenant people, his bride. You have to remember, however passionate we might be about experiencing redemption itself, either the application of it in our own heart and deliverance from some of those sins that entangle us, He's ever more passionate about freeing us. That God is 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 passionate about. He's, he's coming down Himself. That's observation just number two. This is a this is a work that God is passionate about. Um, he is attentive. He's he sees. He says, I love those words. He sees. He hears. He knows. You know. Uh, you don't always see that in human relationships of that kind of attention to detail or care, right? I mean, imagine for a moment, like a, a, a young wife with an infant baby, right? Picture. All right, got the picture. Young wife, infant baby in her hand, and it's dinner time. Dinner served. And she goes to sit down, and she's having a difficult time pulling out her chair and trying to sit down and push it in with his baby in her arms. Meanwhile, her husband, sitting there already eating, doesn't even notice she needs help getting to her seat. And she sits there after she manages to get herself seated at the table with this plate with a nice big juicy piece of prime rib that she can't manage to cut because you can't cut meat with one hand, right? Meanwhile, her husband, who's not paying attention, is jaw jacking about politics and why Trump is the best president we've ever seen, and she can't eat. Now, I just threw my gender under the bus right there. (laughs) I know, you guys aren't like that at all. You're just like, oh, sweetheart, oh, yeah, let me get the chair for you. Oh, can I cut your snake for you? How about those, uh, do you want me to feed you? We just, you know, uh, that's how you guys are, I know. God's not like that. He sees, he hears, he knows the needs of his people, including you as individuals. Because he is, is, in his grace, he is passionate about his people and caring for the needs of his people. Observation number two about the nature of God's redeeming heart. Now at this point in the story, like after Moses like scooped himself back up after being afraid, I think he was probably in a good mood. Like, wow, so you're finally going to do it. Been 400 years, a little slow, right? You're going you're to come down. You've seen it. You're going to deliver. I mean, that's what he said. That's great news until I think he got to verse 10, right? Like God's going to do this deliverance thing. And then it comes and then comes the finger. (laughs) It's like, come, I will send you the Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So wait a second, you said you were gonna come down and do it. Now you're pointing the finger saying, I'm going down there. (laughs) If you pointed that finger at you, I know you're thinking. You're thinking, well, I would do it. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, whatever. (laughs) This is not true. (laughs) I'd be going, what? Do you you know who I am? Okay, right? At this point in the story, according to Exodus 7, 7, he's around 80 years old. As I said last week, who knows? Maybe he had to walk with a cane. We don't know. But I think it's okay to call that old. And then, like... That's to go back down to the scene of the crime where he murdered an Egyptian. There could be wanted posters up, right? We don't. He didn't, at this point in the story, he doesn't know. It could be a death sentence. You're going to go back to the place where I, I committed a crime and I'm eight years old? You forget who I am? I don't even have my own sheep. I'm taking care of my father-in-law's sheep. It's like, no, you are going to go. The point being... Like, at the, at, the, at the moment that God calls Moses to be a part of this deliverance, Moses is a weak individual, physically. <clears throat> Who, me? Yeah, you. Like, you're going back down. You're going back down. You're going to be my instrument of... Deliverance. You are going to be my instrument of redemption. You are going to be my small s instrument of salvation. Interesting, isn't it that, like, oh, oh, oh. like and just send some angels, Michael, Gabriel. Seraphim? Cherubim? Maybe send some storms? Tornadoes? Earthquakes? You're sending me in solo. Right? There's no Navy SEALs. No battalion of Marines. There's no reinforcements. It's just me. A single 80-year-old man going in to do what? You see? He's sending him in solo. A weak man. Why? Why would God do this? Like, have you ever asked yourself, why would God ask Why didn't he just do it himself? Well, I think the big reason why is because from the very beginning, God had determined human agency in the carrying out of his will. God came to Adam and he says, Listen, subdue the earth as my representative. And even after Adam blew it, God didn't abandon his plan. He never does. He doesn't allow the devil to derail what he originally started. No, his deliverance throughout history would come through human beings. That's, that is his design. And Moses is a part of it. With the ultimate aim of a human being the instrument of deliverance the perfect human, the God-human, Jesus Christ. You see, that's the way he always designed it. So why did God appoint Moses? Well, because God determined that he would save the world through human agency, ultimately through his own son. But I want you to notice something else, and this should be encouraging to you, is that God could have used Moses when he was 40 and stronger, but he didn't. And one of the patterns that we see throughout Scripture is that God saves or he conquers or he delivers or he redeems through weakness. He conquers, he delivers, he redeems through weakness. Moses at this point is weak. David king David the youngest of all the brothers the last born and conceptually the weakest he chooses to save by few rather than many he chooses to save by even one that he chose to save us and all the world who come to faith through a boy who was born to peasants in a manger, who was a Nazarene, who was a carpenter, who was despised and rejected of men. And yet God took that stone that the builders rejected and he made it the cornerstone of our salvation. That's how God chooses to work, to display his power through weakness. So no one can look at Moses and go, well, of course. That like, guy looks like Lou Ferrigno or looks like, you know, Ronald Schwarzenegger. No, it's just an 80-year-old man. There's the only one, one explanation for what's happening, and that is God's powers here. And the same, interestingly enough, God still chooses to use human agency in his ongoing work of redemption. Jesus could have sent angels through the earth to talk about and to testify about his death and resurrection, but he didn't. You know what he did? He gave that responsibility to us. Human agents who are supposed to go and live and declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. As weak as we may be, as inadequate as we may feel, God's power works through that weakness. He chose you and me. He chose, in the words of Paul, To confound the wisdom of the world with the foolishness of the cross. To confound the strength of the world through weakness. That's his way to display his power. So listen, this is our part. 21st century, we have part of this mission of redemption, of taking this to the world, what Christ has done. It is a powerful, a powerful thing that can liberate people's lives in God's time. When God says, yes, now and now and now. Because he's passionate about it. And not to allow our own sense of inadequacy to to derail or discourage us. Listen, I mean, what, what would keep you from taking one of those cards, handing it to a neighbor and saying, listen, I want you to come hear about the resurrection if you're willing. Or just opening your mouth and saying, hey, I just got to tell you, the joy that I have is because I am loved by God. What would keep you from doing that? Are you thinking, I'm just not smart enough, Dan. Well, you know what? Maybe you aren't that smart. I think you're probably fooling yourself, but you know what? God loves to use not smart people to show his power. You might say, I'm just, I'm, just, I, I'm just too weak, I can't do it. It's like, great, so you're weak. Perfect place to be. God loves to use weak people. He always has. Whatever your excuse is, the fact of the matter is it's just an excuse. God loves, he chooses to use human weakness to display and to communicate his awesome, life-altering, soul-saving power and that's that's what we're supposed to be doing right now you know now we, we, we have to recognize redemption the timing of it both in the grand sense and the small sense is in his hands when he he applies his power to someone's heart and brings faith about that's that's his work right our our job is is to simply trust wait hope pray and do what he's called us to do that's that's the, just the simple nuts and bolts of gospel living. So here we are this week coming into this week. Man, I say, this is the time when we have more people coming to our church than ever this Easter. It's one of those times where we just want to see, it's an opportunity, a rich opportunity to pray and ask God, "Can you make this a now moment for people?" You know So I want to encourage you this week, just don't make excuses for not being an instrument of salvation, wherever he's placed you, whatever that looks like, whatever conversations need to be had. is to, As God told Moses to go, his job was to go, and Jesus told us, hey, listen, you need to go. Our responsibility is to go. I hope people will get saved this, this week, this Sunday. I hope people will hear, and God will say, now, that would be awesome. Good news. Father, grant us courage as a people. We thank you that you are you're sovereign, you are good, you're passionate about the salvation of your people and the glory of your name. I pray that whatever excuses we have in our own hearts or fears we have about being who you've called us to be, uh, instruments of redemption, um, that you would grant us courage to, to step out and to do the hard thing and, and just follow you and, and allow you to, to do what you're going to do and leave the results up to you and the outcomes up to you. Thank you, Father, again for loving us. Um, what an amazing privilege and yet responsibility we have to be your people in this time. Really, the conduit of your salvation to the world. And uh, as weak as we are and as hard as that is to believe, it's true. In Christ's name, Amen.